so we're going to read now in God's Word, and we turn to our Old Testaments, to the first book of Kings. First book of Kings, chapter 19, and uh, page there, page 360. We're going to read uh, the first 18 verses, first 18 verses of chapter 19. And uh, this is the section in which Elijah uh, features so powerfully. We saw Elijah briefly this morning. We see Elijah much more prominently this evening. He's just come down, as it were, from Mount Carmel and that great contest against the prophets of Baal, uh, which the Lord has so clearly won. And the prophets of Baal have been slaughtered, and now Elijah has prayed, and the, uh, the clouds and the rain have come, and the drought is over. But let's read on to uh, chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as, one of, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, or indeed as it says in some translations, a small, still voice. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, brothers and sisters, we return for, I don't know, about another four weeks or so uh, to a series we began early in September, and it's been a series on the subject of fear and encouragement. Although the fear has been gradually morphing into something more like discouragement, Faintness, weariness, fear is part of it, but there is a whole set of human emotions that are known to Christians in the Christian life that are associated with fear, discouragement, weariness, a lack of motivation, a sense that it's all rather too much for us. And we, earlier on in the autumn, looked at a number of key Old Testament characters, you may remember, we looked at David saying, whenever I am afraid, Psalm 63, wasn't it? I put my trust in you, Psalm 56, it was, wasn't it? And then Moses, we saw, Moses so terrified of going to the people of Israel and going to Pharaoh and the Lord uh, giving Moses that strength and encouragement that he needed. I will be with you, I will be with your mouth, he said. And then Abraham, we saw Abraham fearing and not knowing what the future would bring when he was still childless and what would the Lord do and the Lord said to him I am your shield your exceedingly great reward and I did say at the time that we would eventually come to Elijah and here we are with Elijah but I must say I approach this passage with a degree of trepidation and uncertainty I don't think that I've really quite got hold of the full meaning of this passage, passage yet. Maybe I never will, maybe nobody ever will, this side of glory. It's often been preached on, it has many, many interpretations, and uh, people have disagreed over exactly what this passage is about and what Elijah is meant to do. But let me just make a couple of points as we get going. Uh, I do not hold that Elijah was suffering from some kind of chronic, lifelong uh, mental illness in this particular case. I don't think that's true. 
Neither do I see that Elijah in this passage is committing some great sin and that the Lord is rebuking him in this passage. So what do we see here? What are the main things that we can take from this? Well, James tells us, doesn't he, in the New Testament, that Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. Or in simple English, Elijah was a guy just like you and me. He knew something of frailty. He knew something of faintness. He knew something of a sense of sheer exhaustion and being overwhelmed in living this life as a servant of God, and in that he has a great deal in common with so many of the Lord's servants. Indeed, I would say all of the Lord's servants, everyone who is a Christian, must at some point in their life know something of what Elijah clearly experiences in this passage here this evening. Now I have three points, three R's this evening, not reading, writing, and arithmetic, but three other R's, which are as follows. The first of them is that Elijah is run down. He's run down. And he's literally run down, isn't he? Because have a look at what's been going on. He's just come down from Mount Carmel, where he has been there during a time of intense uh, confrontation and conflict. Remember, he's been gathering all the prophets of Baal, and he has gone there alone, it seems. And there's been that mighty contest, the prophets of Baal seeking the blessing of Baal to fall upon the offering, and it never comes throughout the whole day, despite Elijah's taunting, maybe because of Elijah's taunting. Of course, nothing happens. No one answers. Baal does not answer. And then, of course, Elijah steps up and he prays, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God and that I am your servant and that God is going to do this thing and he sends fire on this offering. And then, of course, the rain comes after the drought. But Elijah, we read in these early verses of chapter 19, Elijah fears, Elijah runs, and he runs from Jezebel. And he runs all the way from Mount Carmel, all the way down to Beersheba. And if you have an idea in your mind of how far that is, it's from the, the northwestern coastal tip of Israel, all the way down to the far southern extremity of the land of Judah, something like 70 miles. You imagine tonight leaving this place and then running for your life all the way to Dover or Portsmouth or Harwich or, uh, I don't know, Swindon or somewhere like that. That's an idea of how far Elijah is running uh, that, that day. And he comes to this place, and he's under this broom tree, this juniper tree, and he is exhausted. And no wonder. He's not mentally ill. He's not taking part in an act of rebellion. He's spent... He's run down. He's worn out. He's burnt out. He's not himself. And we find him saying things that he wouldn't ordinarily say. Look at him in verse 4. 
he asked that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Why is Elijah speaking like that? What's wrong with him? He's like anyone. He has limitations. He's a man. He's a creature. He has a limited supply of strength and energy and mental vitality. And it's all been exhausted. He's a body and he's a soul. And the body and the soul and the mind are all linked up in us, aren't they? We are a psychosomatic whole. When our minds or our bodies or both are severely tried and exercised and put through the mill, our bodies and our minds together are going to be absolutely flat out. And that's where Elijah is. I think we would call Elijah a type A personality, wouldn't we? He's a strong guy. He's a leader. He's a doer. He's a fixer. He gets things happening. Elijah is an alpha male, alpha double plus male. He's a great silver back gorilla in the forest. He, he, he's a leader. He's a strong man. But he's spent. He's exhausted. He can barely open his eyes now. Bold man that he is, strong man that he is. He reminds us, of course, of, of John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes later on as the the Elijah that was promised, the same spirit, the same earnestness, the same, the same kind of uh, rough wilderness urging that we see in Elijah. We think of characters like John Knox, rugged. John Knox who said and who prayed, give me Scotland or I die. John Knox who would quite happily go and tell Mary, Queen of Scots, how badly astray she was going at the risk to his own life. Strong man. But Elijah here is spent. Yes, he's strong. I was thinking about Elijah. He makes Bear grills look a bit like Mr. Bean, you might say. That's the sort of character he is. But here he is. Frail. Limited. Weak. The strongest of individuals are subject to great fluctuation. And many such people in the world, in the Bible, and in Christian history have been this way. I often think of Spurgeon as a man like that. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. Spurgeon, we think of his tremendous power and his oratory and his preaching, and we think he must have been one of these real alpha males too. But you know... Spurgeon was a man given to extreme lows and depression. And he would tell his congregation that. He would say, you know, today I feel exceedingly heavy and weary and depressed. He didn't hide it from his own people. They could see it. But uh, this, is, this is what uh, humanity is. We're, we're all creatures. Uh, we're all weak. We're all frail. And there are times when life gets on top of us. A season of great busyness and activity drains us. And it can drain a man like Elijah. How much more it can drain people like you and me who perhaps are nowhere near touching distance of Elijah.
There he is, run down. Are you run down? Sometimes professional life, domestic life, family life, health life, just life, traveling, getting up early, doing things, tensions, strains, they wear you down, they get you run down, they burn you out. So what happens to Elijah? The second R is for refreshment. We see him flat out. We see his words, we hear his words. We think, Elijah, what's happened to you? You want to die? Well, this isn't the Elijah I know. I thought he was a bold man, a strong man. Well, he was, but look at him. And what does the Lord do? He ministers to him. And we see in verse 5, he lies down and he sleeps. And the impression given is that he sleeps very long and very deep. He doesn't just wake up normally, as you and I generally do. An angel has to come and touch him and wake him up and say, get up and eat. And then we see Elijah, it seems, going to sleep again a little bit later on. And the angel is bringing Elijah food, and the angel is bringing Elijah water to drink. He's being given sleep. He's being given food. He's being given drink. He's being given things that his body needs. Elijah needed sleep more than he needed a sermon. Elijah needed cake more than he needed a catechism or a conference. You might say, well, you know, Elijah's flagging a bit, isn't he? Now, come on, Elijah. You should go to a conference on perseverance and dedication and staying it and get up and sing Soldiers of Christ Arise, you, you floppy old wuss, you Elijah. Now, come on. What are you doing here? But no, no, Elijah doesn't need that now. Elijah won't benefit from that now. And neither would you or I if he were in his situation. God ministers to Elijah's physical and bodily needs. And here is something that we need to really hear and get our heads around, all of us, for our own sakes, for the sakes of those we are burdened for. We are physical people, living in physical bodies, in a physical world, with physical needs, physical appetites, physical limitations. We are bodies. We don't just have bodies. As Professor John Murray writes somewhere, we, we are bodies. The Christian biblical worldview exalts emphasizes the physical, bodily nature of mankind, of humanity. And that is something that is quite unique about the Christian, I could say the Judeo-Christian, but I'll say the Christian and biblical message. The importance and the honor and the dignity of the body. You know that God made the body of Adam before he breathed the breath of life into it, before the Spirit of God entered Adam, the body was already there. There is a certain primacy to the body. The body matters. 
the body is matter, of course. I had a conversation last Monday with a man at a, at a fraternal I go to, a man who's been working in Mongolia for the last 45 years or so. And we got talking about these themes. And he was talking about how the Buddhist worldview and the Hindu worldview, the Sikh worldview, and even to a certain extent the Muslim worldview, they have a very low view of the human body. It's all about the spirit world. Spirit comes first. Something ethereal, something invisible, something intangible, something mystical. I say spirit. I, I don't mean Christian spirituality. I mean here something that is quite foreign to Christian thinking. Because in Christian thinking, the body is essential. The body counts. And, and that is the view that the Apostle Paul has to explain, of course, to the Greeks or to the Corinthians with their Greek thinking in 1 Corinthians 15. They, they, they understood that, uh, that there was some kind of salvation, uh, that the Christian message is a message of salvation. But they were inclined to see salvation as, as merely escaping from this body and inhabiting a higher realm where there was, there was no body. And that was, of course, the, the, the Gnostic heresy that began to, to feature in the early church. It's the idea that matter physicality stuff is, is, is evil, is, 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 down, is, is down there somewhere. And of course, to be pure, invisible, intangible spirit is what it's all about. And John has to say, and Paul has to say in various letters, no, that's wrong. Understand that at the heart of the Christian message is an incarnate Savior, Jesus Christ, who is given a body, who keeps his body, who has a body now. We think, well, where is it? Where do we look to find the body of Jesus? We don't know where it is. We can't fasten a Hubble Space Telescope on it. But it's there somewhere. And we, brothers and sisters, will be raised with a physical, spiritual body. That's no contradiction, by the way. Spiritual, yes. Physical, yes. Physical matters. We were thinking, weren't we, earlier on about Timothy and um, Timothy's fears, Timothy's timidity and how Paul has to encourage him and exhort him. And, and, and Paul says to Timothy, don't just drink water, drink a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I'm only speculating here, but I think Timothy might have been saying things like this. Well, of course, I need to be praying more. I, I, need, to be, I need to be enhancing my spiritual life and uh, the body, my body, well, I doesn't worry about that too much. My body is, uh, is, is very temporary and it uh, doesn't matter. No, says Paul. Drink wine, a little wine, because of your illnesses. You need to be strong. Look after your body. Asceticism, the idea that we should neglect our body, is, has been a blight on Christian history for 2,000 years. One of the great features of the ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great man, was that he had been a medical doctor before he was a preacher of the gospel. And he would have been a leader in any medical field had he pursued that for much longer. He was already a leader when he left the medical profession in many ways. But as a doctor, as a clinician, and as a pastor, 
he understood the mind and the body and the wholeness of what it means to be human. And we need to grasp that, brothers and sisters. We should not neglect our bodies. Obvious examples. Elijah's examples. Sleep. Get enough sleep. Have regular times of sleep. Know how much sleep you need. Some people can get by on about five hours a night. Some people need about ten hours a night. Know how much you need. Get your sleep. Make sleep important. Food and drink. I'm not trying to, uh, to hector you and tell you what to do, but I'm just making a point. Regular mealtimes matter. They are helpful ways of structuring our lives to look after our bodies. We should give thought to these things. Exercise, fresh air, varieties of physical activity and recreation, they are valuable to us. The body matters. And here is the Lord coming to his servant and saying, Elijah, Elijah, for as long as you need, rest. For as long as you must, sleep. And when you wake up, eat and drink. And then go back to sleep again if you need to. Then eat a bit more and then drink a little more until your strength is recovered. And then get going again. We are more than minds. We're not just receptacles for theological information. We get this doctrine in our minds and we're sorted. No, no. We need to give attention to what we are in our physical nature. The joined up physical, mental, spiritual nature that is, that is humanity. As Christ is our humanity. You think of Christ himself for a while. The Jesus who grew tired at that well in Samaria. The Jesus who knew emotions, tears, sweat that we know. The Jesus who could weep and the Jesus who, who needed to eat, and who needed to stop and needed to drink and all the things that we need to do. Jesus shared and shares our humanity. There's nothing mystical about it. He appeared as a man. He remains a man forever. But let me come on now to a final point, which I will simply call now reinvigoration. Reinvigoration. And there's too much to cover tonight in what follows. But we see from verse 8 onwards that Elijah is restored. Elijah is reinvigorated. And he gets up, and he eats, and he drinks, and then he goes 40 days, 40 nights, all the way to Horeb. Where's Horeb? Horeb is the same place as Sinai, the mountain of God, the place where Moses and the Israelites had received the Ten Commandments. I told you this morning there are many connections between Moses and Elijah and various mountains, and here is one of them. Now, I don't want to take too long over this point. Just a few brief observations about the exchange that now takes place. Sometimes we read these words of the Lord to Elijah in verse 9, and then again in verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
as if Elijah was some kind of naughty boy. What are you doing here, Elijah? You shouldn't be here. You should be back where you were before. Why did you ever come down this far? You should be back there with Ahab and Jezebel and all the rest of it. You've strayed. You've trespassed. You've gone much too far. You, you're in the wrong place. You're a, you're a naughty schoolboy. Get back to where you're meant to be. I don't think that's the case at all. Dale Ralph Davis, the commentator, suggests that God's question to Elijah is not a question of rebuke. It's a question of invitation. Invitation. Elijah, why have you come here? Why have you come here? And Elijah gives a faithful summary. I've been very jealous for you. Three and a half years Elijah prayed, didn't he? Three and a half years of drought there had been, and Elijah's been on a great adventure, and he's been encountering and kings and queens and prophets of Baal, and he's been fed by ravens, he's been raising the dead, he's been on his travels, he's been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, and for good reason, because the people of Israel have forsaken God's covenant. They've thrown down the altars of the Lord. They've killed the prophets. And Elijah feels from his own perspective right now as if I, only I, am left. I'm the only prophet of God. I'm the only faithful soul to you, O Lord, in the whole earth. You see, he's still a frail, limited man, isn't he? But the Lord loves Elijah. And the Lord loves his people. And the Lord is now restoring and reinvigorating Elijah. He's saying to him, I've still got work for you to do. You see, there was a season in Elijah's life, which we've looked at already, where he was absolutely spent, burnt out, run down, worn out, apparently finished. And he needed that time. But he needed it that he might subsequently, having been refreshed, be restored and reinvigorated. And sometimes the Lord does that in a person's life. He brings you to a time of crisis, unforeseen crisis, maybe a, a kind of midlife crisis, whatever we may want to call it, a kind of comparable, comparative breakdown of our faculties. We're not what we were. We've, we're brought low for a season. Happened to Thomas Chalmers in Scotland in the early 19th century. As in the winter of 1810, he was brought very, very low. He was ill for many, many months. And he seemed to be finished. He was only a man of about 30 years of age. But he came back the following spring and summer, a new man. There was a power in his ministry and his preaching that hadn't been there before. He knew his God. He did mighty things. David was sharing with me just last week about... a. Uh, a guy called uh, Peter Adam uh, in, in Australia who, there's a video of him, the pastor's heart, and this man went through, a, been going through a season and many years of depression, starting in the 1980s. Depression that affected his whole life and his preaching. And uh, he came back to preaching. And somebody said to him, after about five years, I, I don't know what's happened to you, but it's done you the power of good. You think, what? 
this man's ministry was changed. And what's changed now for Elijah? We can see that Elijah has more to do that the Lord has for him. There's a new epoch, there's a new era, there's a new season in his life. The Lord is expanding his ministry, if you like. He's, he's multiplying his ministry. He's, he's dispersing his ministry because he's saying to him, the Lord is saying to Elijah, Elijah, look, I, you're going to go and anoint various people as kings and prophets in Syria and in Israel. And in particular, Elijah, I'm going to anoint a successor. You're going to anoint a successor, Elisha, who will follow you. One who will actually say, give me a double portion of the spirit that Elijah had. And he will be greatly used because, Elijah, you've worked hard and I've worked hard through you. But understand this, Elijah, I am going to bless my own word in Israel, through you and beyond you. And understand this as well, Elijah. You think you're the only one left, and I can see why you might feel that way. But there are 7,000 others who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. They haven't kissed the false god Baal. No, they're faithful to me. All this time, remember, faithful Obadiah has been hiding these prophets in caves. And there are others besides, no doubt, that are there in Israel. The Lord is saying to Elijah... And maybe the Lord needs to say to you tonight and to me, maybe you need a new season in your life where you actually slow down and stop a little bit and stop thinking that it's all about you running and running and working hard and wearing yourself and running yourself into the ground. And I need to slow you down and I need to teach you that your sufficiency is not in yourself, it's in me, says the Lord. I have my Elishas that I'm calling. I have many other prophets and many other servants around, thousands of them that you maybe aren't aware of, and I'm going to use them because the Lord Jesus Christ said, as we thought a few Wednesdays ago, I will build my church. He will build his church. He will build this church. And in these next years, he will build this church in the way that he chooses. And David mentioned preaching and praying and visions being cast and a vision that we should cast is surely this oh that the lord would would raise up within us and bring to us more undiscovered servants that he will raise up or maybe somebody whose gifts and whose energy is kind of lying dormant but god wants to use you and and challenge you and say to you look how can you serve the Lord here or elsewhere in a way that brings him glory and encourages the brothers and sisters at Grove Chapel and in other places? It's very easy. It could happen to anybody. We're in a ministry. Your ministry might not be a particularly vaunted ministry, prominent ministry. You, you, you do something every week and you think, well, it's only me. I do it all alone. Don't get much thanks for it, much recognition for it. I just slog on and I get tired and ah, it's really hard work. And maybe the Lord is saying to you, ask me. Ask me to strengthen your hands 
Ask me to strengthen the hands of others who are around you. Ask me to bring other hands to join you in the work that you're doing. Because this is the Lord's work that we are doing. Sometimes our weak hands and our feeble knees can hang very loose, can't they? We collapse like Elijah did. And then the Lord says, the strength is mine. The provision is mine. The work is mine. It doesn't all depend on you. I have many, many other servants that I'm going to bring and use in this place. And let's pray that vision, brothers and sisters. Let's pray that vision into this church and into this community more and more. That the Lord would add, the Lord would multiply, the Lord would bless for his own name's sake. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, how much wiser you are than us, stronger than us, better than us. Oh, Lord, we are weak, you are mighty. We are blind, but you see everything. We have narrow, cramped, limited visions, but, Lord, you know the future and you know what's going on and you know what tomorrow will bring. We pray for ourselves. We pray that we would look after ourselves and our loved ones, our bodies and our minds. We pray that we would all look out for one another. Lord, we think of these care groups that are starting next Sunday and uh, these four groups that we as members in this church are belonging to. Uh, And we think of the care and the practical concern that that will, we pray, engender and encourage. But, oh Lord, whoever we are, help us to be very aware of our limitations and our needs, but of the strength, oh Lord God, that you supply to all your people. Lord, go with us into this new week and, and help us and encourage us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.